This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Assistant Secretary Leaf, uh, we're glad to get to welcome you in your new role. We're glad you finally made it. And most importantly, we're happy that you're here. Thank you for coming before us today. Uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Stroll, uh, thank you uh, for uh, coming back to the committee. Uh, as um, I'm sure many know, uh, the Assistant Secretary was our uh, Middle East expert for a while, so we're glad to see her back. I have been asking a simple but important question for some time that I hope this hearing will answer. What is the administration's strategy on Syria? During the last presidential election, Secretary Blinken wrote, quote, when Joe Biden is president, we will restore U.S. leadership on humanitarian issues. And yet, with the frozen conflict in Syria leading to immense humanitarian, political, and security dilemmas, leadership from the United States or elsewhere seems lacking. Flights to Syria are resuming. Embassies in Damascus are reopening. When Bashar al-Assad landed in the United Arab Emirates in March, he was given a warm welcome as any other head of state would have received, as if he had never ordered a barbaric bombardment of innocent Syrian civilians as if Assad never ordered chemical weapon attacks that left children gasping for their lives on ventilators. This comes within weeks of new evidence of Syrian atrocities coming to light. Video of Assad's soldiers forcing victims to climb down into a mass grave before massacring them. Think of the message this sends to other dictators around the world who would butcher innocent civilians. You can commit war crimes in broad daylight on camera, and the global community will just shrug its shoulders. This is not lost on Iran. After propping up Assad with billions of dollars, after supporting him with Hezbollah and the Revolutionary Guard Corps, such impunity only fuels Iran's regional aggression. Whether through attacks on U.S. personnel and assets or threatening our allies and partners in Iraq and Jordan, not to mention fueling an active battleground on Israel's border. And it is not lost on Putin. No one who has followed Putin's brutality in Syria for the past decade should be surprised that he is starving and shelling Ukrainians, just as he starved and shelled Syrians. While I have seen the administration's written strategy for Syria as required in the NDAA, which um, was skeletal from my perspective. I look forward to delving a bit more in detail into the tools and U.S. international political will to execute that strategy. I'd like to hear whether you believe U.N. Security Council Resolution 2255 has lived up to the path we thought it once could, because it seems the roads we need to be traveling uh, on are crumbling. Earlier this year, in an attempt to free imprisoned extremists, ISIS launched a massive jailbreak in Hasaka. They attacked a Syrian prison with car bombs and gunmen in a battle that lasted more than a week. On top of that, the Assad regime and Hezbollah are manufacturing addictive antifetamine pills called Captagon, effectively turning Syria into a narco state trafficking the drug throughout Europe and the Middle East to obtain hard currency despite sanctions. And with the UN mandate for cross-border humanitarian aid expiring next month, 
there is a real question as to whether Russia will support an extension, particularly as the war in Ukraine has ushered in a food crisis that has hit Syria and a number of its neighbors. We need to continue to prioritize our response to this dire humanitarian situation. We must continue to support our partners in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and across Europe who have absorbed the Syrian refugee community that amounts to 6.8 million people worldwide. Added to this, another 6.7 million who have been displaced within Syria, leaving an entire generation of Syrian children growing up with dim prospects of ever returning home or the possibility of a bright future. So to close, let me lay out what I see as priorities that the U.S. and the international community must continue to hold the Assad regime accountable for its crimes. We need a comprehensive strategy, one that enforces fully the robust set of U.S. sanctions as a means to build leverage that will sharpen Assad's choices and maintain his political isolation. This includes using such sanctions against Assad's benefactors in Moscow and Tehran. It also means sending the clear signal that we cannot tolerate a return to business as usual with Assad and his murderous regime. A strategy would lean in with aggressive U.S. diplomacy to continue to marshal the international community in support of this leverage and to reinvigorate the political process. To this end, I am glad that the NEA Bureau now has an appointed and confirmed leader in you, Assistant Secretary. However, there remain a number of nominees for vital positions in the Middle East that need to move forward, including, crucially for Syria, Tamara Witz as USAID's Assistant Administrator for the Middle East. A U.S. strategy would continue to prioritize bringing its own resources and the resources of the international community to bear on Syria's humanitarian crisis, while being judicious to focus our assistance in ways that doesn't benefit the regime. It would include how to help continue to help Syria's neighbors, especially Jordan and Lebanon, who have shown incredible hospitality to those fleeing Assad's brutality, but nevertheless are bearing a significant strain. To that end, we need a full court press at the United Nations to address a possible Russian veto of the mandate for the last remaining border crossing for desperately needed humanitarian assistance, coupled with a ready-to-implement strategy for pushing that assistance if and when Russia uses its veto. Putin cannot be allowed to hold desperate Syrians as ransom for demands of relief in the Ukrainian context. That strategy should include new consideration of Russia's role in Syria following its invasion of Ukraine and the steps needed to reduce Russian activities while denying Iran and Hezbollah the ability to fill any vacuum created by Russia's preoccupation with Ukraine. It should also address Turkey's role in Syria, taking into consideration its hosting of millions of refugees and its position as a launch point for humanitarian assistance to its destructive campaigns against our Kurdish partners in the fight against ISIS, including renewed threats to invade northern Syria. It would further flush out steps needed to counter the danger posed by Hezbollah and the Iranian weapons that traffics across Syria. And it should lay out concrete steps to be taken to secure the release of U.S. citizens Austin Tice and Majid Kamalamaz, who have been detained by the Assad regime since 2012 and 2017, respectively. It must provide a path forward that allows unfettered humanitarian access and war crime investigations. And it must provide a long-term legal strategy 
for ensuring that the horrors that Bashar al-Assad and his regime have inflicted on the Syrian people do not go unanswered. And it should describe how the U.S. can help rally the weight of international pressure on Assad to pursue the political path to unfreeze this conflict. On this, Congress has been clear. We overwhelmingly passed the Caesar Syrian Civilian Protection Act, whose primary purpose is to sanction companies or individuals who facilitate Assad's brutality. Whether they are doing business with the Syrian government or its security services, providing aircraft or spare parts, and I would like to see the administration use all these tools. We cannot simply allow the regime to return to business as usual. We cannot turn our backs on the Syrian people, and we cannot give up supporting them as so many desperately try to work towards a free and democratic Syria. America's values, its principles, and its reputation on the world stage hang in the balance. With that, let me turn to Senator Risch, the ranking member. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Let me, let me put my statement into context before I start, and that is there, there is no daylight between the chairman and I on uh, the Syrian issue. I think he is, uh, as clearly as can be, uh, laid it out, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit more, and then we'll turn it over to you. Now more than ever, uh, particularly in the face of Putin's brutality in Ukraine, it is absolutely crucial we confront Assad's ongoing crimes against the Syrian people. Over the past 12 years, the Assad regime, with the support of his Russian and Iranian backers, has carried out countless chemical weapons attacks on innocent civilians, intentionally targeted hospitals and schools, used starvation as a weapon of war, and forced the disappearance of thousands. The world had never seen atrocities on this scale since the Second World War and what we're uncovering now in Ukraine. These crimes are well documented. In addition to the Caesar file, the international community has amassed hundreds of thousands of government documents linking these crimes directly to Bashar al-Assad. Stephen Rapp, former U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes, has argued we have more evidence against the Assad regime than we did against the Nazis in Nuremberg. In a previous hearing, we heard directly from the Caesar Act's namesake about the regime's continued atrocities. Today, we will hear from another brave Syrian who risked his life to bring these accounts of gross human rights violations to the international community. Accountability for Assad has been slow and mechanisms are few. Neither Syria nor the United States are members of the International Criminal Court and it remains a dangerously politicized body. However, nations have begun to pursue accountability under their own domestic courts. I was heartened to hear of the recent conviction of a senior Assad regime official in Germany who was involved in the torture of Syrian civilians on a mass scale. This is a start, but we need to do more. We must establish a more robust, formalized accountability mechanism. Turning to Syria policy moving forward, the United States has long maintained a policy of economic and diplomatic isolation to force a political solution to the Syrian conflict. Unfortunately, that longstanding policy is beginning to crumble. And I remain concerned this administration has accepted Assad's rule as a foregone conclusion. Worse, I fear this administration is tacitly approving outreach to the regime. Caesar sanctions enforcement has been lacking, and the administration's support for energy deals through Syria to Lebanon violates the Caesar Act. Further, I'm deeply concerned with the administration's funding of so-called early recovery projects in regime-held areas. These activities cross the line against Caesar-prohibited reconstruction and open the door to normalization with Assad. The administration's stated Syria policy consists of four lines of effort. Counter the Islamic State, 
maintain this, uh, the ceasefire in Syria, expand humanitarian access, and seek accountability for crimes. While all these are laudable, it is my concern that the administration's efforts have expanded beyond humanitarian access and into the realm of reconstruction. While we've seen little movement on seeking accountability for Assad, uh, for the, to the Assad regime, regime. It's virtually, uh, it is vitally important that the U.S. hold the line against rehabilitating the regime. Current and future uh, autocrats are watching our actions. We cannot send a message that we will forget these atrocities over time and welcome Assad back to the international community. We can't. In that light, I'm gravely concerned by the number of our Arab partners who have increased formal and informal relationships with the regime in recent years, including through the establishment of official diplomatic outposts and pursuit of economic relationships. The UAE's outreach has been particularly problematic. The law on normalization and reconstruction is clear. Any engagement with the Assad regime, whether diplomatic or economic, must be met with a firm response using the tools laid out in the Caesar Act. We must ensure our policy doesn't entrench the Assad regime, energizes progress under the UN Security Council Resolution 2254, and is commensurate with American values. In that light, I ask unanimous consent that a recent video documenting regime war crimes in uh, Tadamon, Syria, be added to the record. While uh, exceptionally difficult to watch, it's vitally important that we put these crimes out uh, in the light of day. So to the witnesses, again, thank you for being here. The chairman and I have talked now uh, about the situation, about the problems. Unfortunately, we get a lot of witnesses to come here and just reiterate what we've said. We've outlined the problems. We've given you the tools with the Caesar Act. We want to hear, we want to hear how you're going to use them to do what uh, you have said is the policy of the United States. Thank you again for being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Rich, and the, your, the video will be included in the record without objection. So uh, we'll start our witness testimony. We'll start off with Secretary Leaf uh, and then um, Assistant Secretary Stroll. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. We'd ask you to summarize them in about five minutes or so so we can enter into a conversation with you. And with that, Secretary Leaf, you're recognized. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, for the past year, the administration has led our allies and partners in crafting a common diplomatic approach to Syria and pursuing concrete actions to improve the lives of Syrians and protect vital national, U.S. national security interests. Uh, let me be frank with you. After more than a decade of conflict, prospects remain limited for advancing a political solution worthy of Syrians who bravely demanded change more than 10 years ago. Syrians today are also hungrier and more impoverished than they've been at any point in the conflict, with over 12 million food insecure. The ultimate responsibility for this continued tragedy rests with Bashar al-Assad, backed by Russia and Iran, who's brought his country to the brink of ruin and remains intransigent. The administration has led international coordination on Syria in the face of this intransigence. We focused on bettering conditions for Syrians, pursuing justice for those wronged by the regime, mitigating the risk to Syria's neighbors of this terrible conflict. We have the following priorities, defeating ISIS and Al-Qaeda, increasing access to humanitarian aid, keeping violence down by maintaining ceasefires, promoting accountability for the Assad regime's atrocities. These are all critical steps on the path to advancing a just political settlement under 2254. We continue to strongly support UN Special Envoy Peterson's efforts, and in fact, I look forward to speaking with him uh, this week. 
And of course, we remain absolutely committed to working relentlessly to bring home fellow American citizens wrongfully detained uh, or held hostage in Syria, to include Austin Tice. Now, in terms of reducing suffering on the ground, humanitarian needs are higher than ever, compounded by the pandemic, historic levels of drought, decades of mismanagement and corruption, and of course, the terrible effects on global food security of Putin's war on Ukraine. So expanding humanitarian access throughout Syria is central to our strategy. Last year, we successfully negotiated a, a, a new resolution, a renewal of a resolution for uh, 2585 to keep the sole border crossing open in northwestern Syria, and we are deeply committed to doing the same this year. We have also been committed from day one to the enduring defeat of ISIS, preserving our military presence in the Northeast, coalescing international support to increase stabilization funding. We pressed countries of origin to repatriate their, their nationals from Northeast Syria, including foreign terrorist fighters. And in areas liberated from ISIS, stabilization assistance and new economic opportunities will help address growing economic insecurity and keep ISIS at bay. On existing ceasefires, I would note we are deeply concerned by recent increased rhetoric from Turkey about potential military moves into the north of Syria. And we've stepped up our diplomatic engagements to, uh, to attempt to uh, stop that. I would note that in the past two years, violence in Syria has at its lowest ebb compared to other uh, decades, uh, other periods in the decades, but we are working assiduously to keep it so. The administration is committed to promoting accountability and justice, and enduring peace and stability in Syria will not be possible without justice for the Syrian people. And I'm mindful that your next panel will include testimony from the brave Syrian whistleblower known as the Gravedigger whom I had the honor to meet and whose harrowing account of atrocities in Syria shook me to the core. So we will continue to promote accountability for Assad and his atrocities. Our sanctions, including those under the Caesar Act, are critical elements in that regard. We're grateful to Congress for adding to the bipartisan effort to broaden our, tool, our toolkit and we'll continue to use all of our tools, including Caesar, again, to press the regime. All of our efforts also support wider security and regional stability to offset the deleterious effects that Assad's criminal war has had on Syria's neighbors. Iranian forces in, in Syria, including the IRGC, Hezbollah, Iran-backed armed groups, threaten the security directly of our allies and partners, uh, most certainly Israel and Jordan, and they play a destabilizing role in Syria. In that regard, the U.S. wholly supports Israel's uh, ability to exercise its inherent right of self-defense. Finally, while I've outlined the necessary building blocks for regional stability and prerequisites to building a road to a political resolution in Syria, I want to be clear on what we have not done in Syria and what we will not do, which is support efforts to normalize or re rehabilitate Bashar al-Assad in a way, lift sanctions on the regime, or change our position opposing reconstruction in Syria until there is authentic, enduring progress towards a political solution. Bashar al-Assad and the coterie around him remain the single largest impediment to that goal. They must and will be held accountable. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Secretary Stroll. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to testify you before you today, particularly because U.S. policy for Syria is an issue set I spent significant time working on with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle as a professional staff member for this committee. 
It is also a pleasure to join Assistant Secretary Leaf in her first testimony before you leading the State Department's NEA Bureau. Senators, DOD's role in Syria is limited by geography and mission. The department supports the lines of effort identified and outlined by Assistant Secretary Leaf, but our activities on the ground are solely focused on the enduring defeat of ISIS. To achieve this objective, DOD, as part of the global coalition to defeat ISIS, works by, with, and through vetted, capable partner forces in northeast Syria and in the vicinity of the Al-Tanf garrison in southern Syria. DOD also remains capable of rapidly deploying forces to conduct operations in other areas of Syria, exemplified by the February 22 raid that resulted in the death of former ISIS leader Abu Ibrahim al-Hashmi al-Qureshi. ISIS remains a real and potent threat. The group continues to conduct attacks and maintains the intent to direct, support, and inspire attacks across the globe and against the homeland. In Northeast Syria, the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, remain our most capable partner in the de-ISIS fight. The Counter-ISIS Train and Equip Fund, CTEF, is an essential tool for enabling the SDF and other vetted partners to achieve the enduring defeat of ISIS. Tremendous thanks to Congress for your continuing support in authorizing and appropriating CTEF funds. We direct CTEF toward basic life support, stipends, detention facility construction, training, and sustainment. But military tools alone cannot achieve ISIS's enduring defeat. The international community must do more to prevent ISIS from reconstituting. By number one, increasing support for stabilization in areas liberated from ISIS. And number two, prioritizing reducing the ISIS fighter population and displaced persons camps currently managed by the SDF across Syria. This includes more than 10,000 ISIS fighters and approximately 60,000 displaced persons. The department is focused on supporting the SDF to provide for the humane and secure detention of these populations and working with the SDF to grow and professionalize the guard force responsible for securing these facilities. The January 2022 ISIS attack in Hasaka is a reminder that ISIS is still a serious threat and sees these detention facilities as an area from which to reconstitute its forces. Countries of origin must repatriate, rehabilitate, reintegrate, and where appropriate prosecute their nationals residing in Northeast Syria. DOD supports State Department efforts by providing logistical support to countries willing to bring their nationals home. Furthermore, we support efforts to work with the government of Iraq to accelerate the pace of its re repatriation efforts. Beyond DOD's focus on the de-ISIS mission, I do want to touch briefly on the threats that pose risk to forces or risk to mission in Syria. Number one, Iran. Iran enables its aligned militias in Iraq and Syria to execute indirect fire and unmanned aerial system UAS attacks against U.S. and coalition forces. The department will not hesitate to take necessary and proportionate action in self-defense to protect our service members. Number two, Russia. Syria remains the one area in the world where U.S. and Russian forces operate in close proximity on a daily basis. The coalition maintains deconfliction channels with the Russian military 
to protect coalition forces and reduce the risk of inadvertent escalation or miscalculation. And number three, Turkish military operations in northern Syria. We are working to maintain focus on the de-ISIS mission, ensure the safety of the civilian operation in northeast Syria, and above all, the protection of U.S. and coalition forces. Large-scale incursions will undermine and jeopardize these core missions and priorities. We have communicated our concerns to Turkey across the U.S. government. It should go without saying here that Iran and Russia's military interventions and ongoing activities inside Syria in service of the Assad regime have have enabled brutal violence and human rights abuses against the Syrian people. DOD supports the State Department's whole-of-government strategy to end this violence by focusing on concrete actions to improve the lives of Syrians and address the underlying causes of this conflict. Thank you, Senators. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, both. We'll start a series of uh, questions. Um, Let me ask you both, uh, without the benefit of further details, the strategy that it was provided by the administration seems largely to be a continuation of what is already being done in Syria. Um, Can you provide further details on the strategy that can shed light on whether and how it represents a course correction from earlier attempts to address the crisis? Simply put, what about this is different from what has been already done? And if there are no significant changes, what makes you think it will work now after 11 years of conflict? Senator (coughs) Chairman, uh, thank you for that question. Um, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure I would call it a course correction as such, but rather uh, the administration undertook a a thoroughgoing evaluation of the situation in Syria as it it is presented today and defined core U.S. national security interests as I outlined and elaborated a a set of, uh, of ways to pursue them. This is a part of a larger multilateral effort and the set of discussions that we are having with partners in the region, partners in Europe. Obviously, um, the, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine has substantially taken attention towards that conflict and away from Syria. But uh, I would just emphasize to you that I plan to make Syria a, a priority uh, within the Bureau, within the Department of State, to marshal a whole-of-government approach to enhance, sharpen, as you as you noted, as uh, the ranking member noted, sharpen uh, the pressure on Assad, uh, and work very in very close collaboration with Gary Peterson to define how we might best use the leverage that we have, the isolation, enhance the isolation, enhance the pressure on on Assad to get substantial gains. And I think, among other things, I would say, even if the political piece seems very much blocked uh, right now. Uh, There are a whole series of things that lie within the regime's ability to change, uh, which would be the conditions uh, that, uh, such as uh, uh, accountability for the disappeared, uh, ceasing uh, uh, conscription, setting conditions for the safe return of IDPs and refugees. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I view all of these pieces assembled as being the elements 
that we can pursue in close coordination. Well, with well let me tell you what I hear from leaders in the region. Um, and basically, their argument is, look, you all not doing anything uh, about Assad. He's still there. Um, we need to deal with it uh, in the absence of seeing any concrete measures. I mean, you saw that the UAE uh, hosted uh, Assad on the 11th anniversary of the Syrian uprising, which is a rather callous moment to host him, if any moment would have been good. Um, you know, what further steps are the administration taking to prevent countries like the UAE, but others, uh, from normalizing ties with the Assad regime? Chairman, um, you know, one thing that I have, um, that I've looked at very closely is sort of the difference between um, the rhetoric and the sort of the misinformation, disinformation, much of it propagated by Damascus, by its backers, the Russians and the Iranians, to suggest that there's a sweeping wave towards Assad in the re region. Uh, the fact of the matter, uh, opinion is quite divided with a number, uh, a significant number of Arab states having no desire to travel down that road. Now, uh, what I hear from some of the partners of ours in, in, the, uh, in the region, the theory of their case is, well, there's an Arab voice, Arab voices missing in Damascus for too long. Uh, the way to get at mitigating, diminishing, pushing out Iranian presence and, and Iranian activities in Syria is to reinsert that Arab voice. That's the theory of their case. I frankly am wholly skeptical. I think Assad takes from every direction, and he gives nothing in return. Uh, and what I have, uh, what I intend to urge, is that 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 engagement must produce results for the benefit of the Syrian people. Mm -hmm. Two final questions: uh, the have, we have the emergent cross-border issue that will expire. How do you see that playing out? And is a political solution under UNSCR 2254 still viable? It seems rather moribund to me, but even though I think it is a desirable path, but there's no energy behind it. Well, to your first question, Chairman, uh, 2585, you know, last year uh, Russia lofted the same threat of a veto. Uh, and the administration across, uh, 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 across the administra administration worked assiduously to, uh, to bring like-minded countries together to corral the votes in the council. And we had a 15 to zero uh, passage of that, of that resolution. Uh, we are doing uh, a similar aggressive uh, diplomatic strategy. If anything, there is even a, a greater sense of a consensus around the urgency and uh, the critical nature of a border access point, cross-border access point. And if anything, we're going to look for uh, further such points. Uh, so we're very committed to that. As to 2254, uh, look, I, I agree. I, there is not a lot of room for optimism right now. I am an eternal optimist, but more to the point, um, I am relentlessly focused on making progress on this file, uh, whether it's uh, in the first instance on the humanitarian uh, conditions for the Syrian people, uh, measures that lie within uh, Assad's uh, remit to, to grant, uh, but I also intend to work aggressively on the political uh, aspects. I hope you're right about the cross-border issue. That was pre-Ukraine, uh, and that makes it far more difficult. Senator Risch. Thank you. I, I agree, Mr. Chairman. I think the 
situation with the Russians is going to be a lot tougher now than it was last time we went through that. Um, about ten, a little over 10 years ago, uh, I was in this room sitting here, and we had people sitting in the chairs you're sitting in, and they assured us that Assad couldn't last more than 30 days. Uh, that was over 10 years ago, and of course he's still there. And uh, during that 10 years, he has committed offenses that uh, it's hard to find anyone who's ever been on this planet before that uh, has, uh, has done worse. Certainly there's some that have done the same, but uh, he's, he's right up there. When you see something like him being welcomed uh, uh, by another country as some type of a distinguished head of state, it's sickening, really, and uh, particularly when uh, that's being done by uh, uh, states that uh, purport to be friends of ours and, and share our values. Uh, there's nothing in, uh, in welcoming this man uh, as a conquering hero that uh, reflects America's values at all. Um, I hope you'll continue in the strongest terms uh, to communicate to those people uh, how uh, uh, nauseating that is to us. Uh, the chairman and I have both done that, and uh, we would uh, certainly welcome the administration to, uh, to join in that. Um, this, th th what we're going through in Ukraine is, is somewhat like this now. We can't have this thing end just as what's happened in Syria where, like you pointed, the hostilities have cranked down, but we can't have this end and say, okay, it's over. No, it's not over. This will never be over. Uh, until the people are held to account uh, for what they've done. And uh, we're a long, long ways away from that. I, I think the one case I, I referred to in Germany is, is merely scratching the surface. But uh, th this is something that's uh, got to go on for a long time. So I'd, in, I'd appreciate hearing from each of you uh, your efforts, as the chairman and I have done, to push back uh, on allies of ours. Uh, from doing what they appear to be doing and saying, well, it's over. No, it's not. Senator, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I spent three years in post-conflict Bosnia, uh, about eight years after um, the guns had fallen silent. It was a devastated uh, country, uh, and years later, it is still socially, economically, uh, the walking wounded. Uh, and there was a deep, acute feeling among the public that accountability was missing and that they were forced to live uh, cheek by jowl with people who had only a few years uh, earlier killed, massacred their loved ones. So I know how uh, the failure for accountability haunts a society, and that's why I am deeply committed to this piece of it, because uh, a society without the means to gain accountability, to understand where their loved ones went, who was responsible, and how they will be held accountable is a society that simply cannot heal. So I am completely dedicated to that proposition. And as to uh, your, your comments um, uh, 10 years ago, I, I will admit, I, uh, at the time I was working on Iraq, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Iraq, I was deeply concerned about the spillover effects of Syria's roiling conflict that it would act as a bellows on Iraq, and, and indeed it did. I was never confident that Assad uh, would, would fall, uh, not because I had a crystal ball, but I think it's in the nature 
of such regimes that they cling, they are the last man to go down and they don't crack easily. All of that said, um, I, I will, uh, I, my own conversations with our partners in the region, be they very close or not so close, will be informed by, by these values. Um, I was shocked to see Bashar al-Assad uh, welcomed as any head of state by the UAE. Uh, we've made that clear to, uh, to the Emiratis that uh, it, it is really just enormous propaganda value and nothing more. Uh, so I will continue uh, those efforts uh, as a key piece of my engagements. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm almost out of time, but uh, Mr. O, you, you made uh, reference, passing reference in your opening statements to the prisoner situation in northeast uh, Syria. Both the chairman and I have had uh, heads of state and, and others from the region underscore what a really serious problem this is and that uh, it is a powder keg. Uh, what, what can you tell us, A, about the situation you see it there, what you see there today, and what, uh, what your efforts are to do something about it? Thank you for that question, Senator. First of all, as I noted in my opening statement, the only long-term viable solution, both for the future stabilization and stability of this area and for the enduring defeat of ISIS, is the reduction of this population and the repatriation of these ISIS fighters to their countries of origin. Some will need to go back beyond Iraq and Syria. We, uh, led by the State Department, are continually engaging through diplomacy and offering support to those countries. Number two, tremendous efforts both through the United Nations, through the U.S. government, and through our partners in the coalition to support the Iraqi government. The majority of these fighters are Iraqi in origin. And then, of course, a long-term solution for the reintegration of Syrian fighters into their communities, which will be difficult without a broader political process in Syria. But that is a long-term proposition and will require intense and painstaking diplomacy supported by humanitarian and stabilization aid, which we will continue to do. In the short term, we are focused on ensuring that facilities are secure and humane for the housing of these fighters and that the SDF, who are bearing the burden for the international community of securely and humanely housing these detainees have the support there that they require. So number one, we're working with the authorities Congress gave us to construct purpose-built facilities for the secure and humane detention of ISIS fighters and ensuring that SDF guards at these detention areas have the proper training to address the needs of this population and securely continue to detain them. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin is with us virtually. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And let me thank both of our witnesses. Uh, Secretary Leaf, I want to follow up on the accountability issue because it is extremely concerning to know the wealth that Assad has been able to accumulate through corruption and the way that he's led Syria and the misuse of power. And to see him welcomed, and you said that you made it clear to the UAE, there are other countries in the region that have done similar types of accommodations for the Assad regime, which is contrary to our policies that have good ties, strong strategic partnerships with the United States. So can you sort of drill down a little bit more with us as to the game plan on isolating the Assad regime? Uh, particularly in the region, and how we are engaging our traditional strategic partners in the region to make it clear that 
that welcoming Assad is not welcomed here in the United States? Thank you, Senator, for that for that question. Um, you know, uh, over the course of the past year, um, I, I would say um, you've had a couple of really high-profile um, uh, events, uh, such as uh, Bashar al-Assad being hosted in the UAE. Uh, there have been phone calls and other uh, interactions between uh, some regional governments um, and the regime. Um, we have not. Um, well, we have not highlighted every time we've had those discussions, but I can assure you that they are ongoing with each and every government in the region. And I would just add, last year there was quite a bit of, uh, of rumant, and more than rumant, that there was consideration of, of uh, unfreezing, essentially, reinstating Syria's membership in the Arab League. Uh, now, that's a sovereign decision for the League and its members, but <coughs> suffice to say we had a number of conversations, and in the end, um, there was no appetite uh, for that. And, and that's why I said earlier, um, there, is, uh, there is the effort ongoing by the regime to, to convey, to paint a picture that it is being re-embraced by the region. Um, it is not the case, but we are making sure that it is not the case. And as I said earlier, I plan to use a variety of tools uh, to that end. Uh, to sharpen his isolation, um, and uh, it will be part of the roadmap with every one of our chiefs of mission and charges. I hope eventually that all of our missions will be led by confirmed ambassadors, but they will have as part of their playbook that conversation with their host government to ensure that we muster uh, the greatest, uh, deepest sense of leverage on Assad against all the elements of 2254. So, so let me talk a little bit about what the Assad regime has done uh, in trying to reach out to the, the Syrians who disagree with him and that are in other countries, the use of Interpol. Uh, of course, the Congress has acted on, on the TRAP Act. Uh, what strategies do we have in order to make it clear uh, that we will not allow the international organizations such as Interpol uh, to be able to be manipulated by the Assad regime uh, what reforms are we working on, and how much success have we had? Senator, that's something I'll need to get uh, more deeply briefed on, but suffice to say, I, I recognize that this is a key piece of our approach. We do not want uh, the abuse of Interpol um, to, uh, to essentially go after uh, dissidents or even uh, just everyday Syrians living abroad, expatriates, uh, pressured by the regime. So I will make that part of the, uh, of the playbook. I appreciate that. And lastly, let me just underscore, we have a lot of tools at our disposal, including enhanced sanctions and uh, other ways that we can express our concerns about the continued conduct of the Assad regime. I would suggest that the timing on some of these issues could very well be impacted by the what's happening in the region as far as Assad being welcomed in other countries. Just an issue that I think we have to be very sensitive as to how we handle the timing of our activities uh, to make it clear that we do not accept uh, Assad being welcomed uh, uh, as a normal partner in the region. Point well taken, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Well Chairman. Taken. Thank you. Uh, Senator Portman is with us virtually. Thank you, Chairman. Appreciate it. And uh, 
Secretary Lee, thanks for your testimony today. Um, for what it's worth, um, my sense is that other countries in the region are looking to us to figure out what is our plan um, long-term for Assad. And until we have a clearer picture and, and can give them a better sense of what we intend to have happen, um, I think it's difficult for us to get them to help us um, in terms of isolating him and certainly not um, uh, developing a, a normal relationship with him. So uh, our U.S. policy on Assad, <clears throat> does he deserve any official role in the post-Civil War Syria? Um, those, those are questions I think have to be answered. But that's not my question today because you've talked about that issue, uh, unless you're interested in, in answering that. Um, I want to focus instead, instead on two issues. One is food and using food as a weapon. We've seen President Putin do this in Ukraine. Uh, he's doing it as we talk. Uh, we've also seen uh, Assad and his supporters in Russia do that. Um, the Russian diplomats at the United Nations Security Council have consistently abused their veto power, as you know, to gradually close down these aid corridors going into Syria. And aid groups from around the world um, who have been trying to feed some of the literally starving people in Syria are frustrated by it. Russia is making their work much harder. I guess they believe that by taking away this um, ability for NGOs to help on the on the food front, that it forces people to rely on Assad, and somehow that his uh, legitimacy would be enhanced by that. Uh, one, I'd like to know whether you think that's true. Um, but my question to you is: There is a resolution coming up next month to hopefully reauthorize the one remaining border crossing for aid that is still being used. So the one corridor left, um, will Russia veto that resolution? And uh, what are you doing and, and what is Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield doing to engage other countries to ensure that this resolution passes and that these food corridors, this one last food corridor can continue? So your comments on all that would be appreciated. Thank you, Senator. Uh, you know, uh, to your to your question, uh, food as a weapon, and is this is the theory of the case um, that by making people uh, Syrians more food insecure, it makes them more dependent on Assad? I mean, uh, I think frankly, the answer is a bit simpler. It's just cruelty for cruelty's sake. It's brutality. It's it's punitive. It's because they can do it. Now, all of that, oh, oh, and, and that it was the the sorry uh, record. Of over a decade of of, uh, of the of the conflict, um, as to your question about two five eight five, we are uh, un we are already well in uh, underway in terms of a, a very uh, methodical and aggressive effort to have that uh, expanded uh, to have Bab al Hawa renewed as a cross border checkpoint uh, as a cross border access point into northwestern uh, Syria, and we will look for further uh, access points. Uh, it is more critical this year than even last year when it was quite urgent that that be uh, maintained. Uh, food insecurity is all the greater because of, of Putin's uh, brutal war on Ukraine and what it has done to lock up uh, Ukrainian uh, wheat stores and other commodities in the ports, Odessa and other ports. Uh, so uh, it is more critical than ever. And the humanitarian community is fixated on it. The donor community is fixated on it. And uh, frankly, I think there is a very wide consensus already that that uh, cross-border point must be renewed. 
Well, you've anticipated my my second question, which was about Ukraine and whether indeed that the Black Sea blockage that the Russians are insisting on, uh, the blockades particularly of Odessa, are having an impact in Syria as they're having an impact on uh, global food insecurity. And you said it does have an impact. And in fact, that those grains from Ukraine, including the wheat uh, that is you know, part of these humanitarian aid packages uh, is necessary to export because it is keeping people alive. Um, so I thank you for, for that. On the SDF issue, uh, this is a constant frustration with Turkey. As you know, the Turks believe that somehow the SDF is um, a uh, significant threat to them. And once again, my understanding is they're threatening to go on the offensive against uh, some of our allies in the SDF. And uh, the SDF has even signaled in some cases, as I understand it, they might be willing to partner with the illegitimate Assad regime uh, out of desperation to be able to repel these attacks. One, do you agree with that assessment? And two, have you engaged with your Turkish counterparts to urge them not to attack our allies in Syria? And if so, what has been their response? Thank you, Senator. <clears throat> Uh, the Turkish government is very well aware of our, our of our views. We've we have had a series of high level uh, engagements with them. I have not yet. I'm about a, a week or so into my job. I'm going. I'm looking for an early opportunity to engage uh, the government on this. Uh, but uh, any venture, any military operation across the border into northern Syria, first and foremost, uh, puts the civilian population in the crosshairs. Um, and secondly, uh, severely puts at risk a critical mission that the global de-ISIS coalition, the U.S., is undertaking. And obviously it puts in, in, into the crosshairs uh, our own uh, partners in that mission. So we are uh, completely uh, uh, unstinting in our efforts with the Turkish government uh, to back them off on this, on this uh, ill-considered venture. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, just to do a follow-up on that question, um, is Turkey going to back off on this venture? I mean, we are expressing our concern, but so far they have not seemed very amenable to respond to our concerns, not only on this issue but on in other areas. Uh, to be quite candid, Senator, I couldn't give you the assurance that they are going to. Thank you. Um, Deputy Assistant Secretary Stuhl, last August you were um, before this committee and you gave a very thorough um, whole of government approach toward addressing ISIS fighters, just as you did this morning with um, Senator Risch when he raised concerns about the ISIS detainees. Um, unfortunately, the situation has gotten worse since that time, not better. And we have, um, passed legislation to create an ISIS detainee coordinator who right now, as I understand, is dual-hatted to look at counterterrorism as well as ISIS detainees. I, I think that's probably not the best way to get something done in that area. So can you talk about what we need to do to actually have a functioning um, detainee coordinator who can who can do the kinds of things that you've laid out so eloquently with Senator Risch that need to be done to address this problem. Thank you for that question, Senator. On the specific uh, uh, question of identifying one coordinator, I am going to defer to Assistant Secretary Leaf on how that 
how she intends to address that now that she is in her position. Great. But I will just say from a DOD perspective, within the authorities and resources we have, number one is what we can do in the near to medium term, which is support the SDF and ensuring that these facilities where ISIS fighters are housed, detainees, are more secure and more humane. And then at the Al-Hol and Al-Raj displaced persons camps, again, it is not a military mission. Those are humanitarian camps. But what we can do is support the SDF by giving them the tools and the training for addressing the, the security and humanitarian needs of that unique population set as well. And then third, of course, is engaging constantly with the SDF about ensuring that humanitarian NGO and UN access uh, to these populations. I, I don't want to cut you off, but let no me problem. ask Assistant Secretary Lee please. then to respond, please. Uh, Senator, I've, I've had uh, several discussions about um, Al-Hol in particular uh, with uh, the CENTCOM commander, General Carrillo, <clears throat> and he and I are going to um, work together on the set of issues around Al-Hol. I, I hope to make an early trip to Iraq uh, for one and engage with the government since so many of the women and children in, in that camp and also, of course, the fighters in Hasaka are of Iraqi origin. Um, I'm going to also obviously work very closely with CT on this issue um, because it does really require, beyond the uh, de-ISIS coalition's efforts to secure the camp to ensure um, constant humanitarian uh, support to the, to the residents of the camp, ultimately we have got to get the camp down. And, and I've seen the numbers over the last couple of years go from 73, 60,000. They're now actually, I think, around 56,000. We've just got to be relentless on this effort, and I do plan to, to work to that effect with CT. And so do you expect to have an ISIS detainee coordinator who will be functioning in that capacity? Honestly, Senator, I don't know. I'll take your question back, and, and I will come back to you on that. So even though we passed legislation that says that needs to happen, that hasn't happened yet. It has not happened yet. As you said, it is, uh, the it, CT Bureau is double-hatted, uh, but I will take your question back. Um, well, Mr. Chairman, clearly I think we need to pass legislation. If we're, gonna, if we're really going to see something done in this area and be serious about it, then we have to have somebody who's in charge of that. And while I, I understand that um, CT is still a problem, when other Middle Eastern leaders are coming to members of this committee and saying, this is a problem that has to be addressed and we can't do it by ourselves, then we need to figure out how to get this done. And so far, we're not making much progress. So um, I, I, want, I have one final question, and that is um, Secretary Menendez talked about Captagon in his opening remarks, and um, we're seeing more and more that the availability of Captagon is not only helping to fund the Assad regime, but it's also creating a an even more destabilizing synthetic drug trade. We're already dealing in the United States with fentanyl. I've seen that very directly in my home state of New Hampshire. So I know the potential problems from the synthetic drug trade. So what can we do to help address that? And are you confident that the Lebanese armed forces can help control that trade that's coming across the border with Lebanon? Senator, I, I think the, the dimensions of the, of the trade, the production and the trafficking, which, by the way, 
yes, as you said, that this is uh, something that is associated with members of the Assad family, the regime, ISIS, uh, you name it, criminal and terrorist elements uh, from Lebanon to Syria are involved in that. So I do think it is an effort that that goes well beyond uh, the the limits of of one uh, one actor, um, however uh, however much they may uh, attempt to deal with it. We've had discussions with the Jordanians, Saudis, others who are deeply concerned about mm -hmm. the spreading um, uh, the toxic nature of this trade and and what it is doing to their society. So. Uh, I will make it part of my mission uh, to work this with all of these governments. We do, in fact, have a number of U.S. agencies who are already engaged with regional partners in information sharing, coordination, coordinating um, uh, uh, operations, and targeting of financial and uh, trafficking networks. And, and we, we just really need to enhance those efforts. Thank you. Well, it's an, another reason why we need to ensure that the Lebanese Armed Forces continues to function. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And just a personal word, congratulations on your son's achievement yesterday. That was very, very uh, just exciting to see. Um, I want to ask about refugees. Um, and I want to ask about refugee, uh, Syrian refugees and asylum seekers in neighboring countries and the effect they're having in those countries. And, I don't want to ask about our policy here in the United States. Let me begin with the neighboring countries. Sizable, six million refugees and asylum seekers, sizable populations in, in Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, elsewhere certainly, some in refugee camps, many just kind of living as they can in the, in the societies. And obviously in small countries, Lebanon, the, the, the number of refugees compared to the population is sizable, very taxing on the school system and other services. In Jordan, a very water-poor country without many water resources, these refugee communities are significant challenges for them. So to talk about just uh, work we're doing, even, you know, we have challenging relationships with Turkey now, but Turkey is hosting huge numbers of refugees, both in camps and in society. What are we doing with the neighboring countries to help them deal with the refugee issues so they don't become, you know, real trouble spots in, in countries that uh, have their own internal challenges to deal with. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, you've touched on one of the, um, you know, one of the uh, most enduring, uh, troubling, tragic dimensions of Assad's war on his own people, which is this uh, essential displacement of half of the population, either internally or externally. And as you said, um, this has been an enormous set of stressors on countries that are already stressed. Um, Lebanon, you would think, would have broken by now. Uh, Jordan equally uh, struggles at times, both in terms of the, wa the scarce water resources, uh, but creation of jobs and so forth. Turkey has something on the order of four million people, and it has become a hot topic uh, um, domestically. Um, we, are, we are using the, uh, the generosity of the American taxpayer to, taxpayer and, of course, of this Congress, um, we're using the funding streams uh, that we have uh, to offset in every way possible uh, this burden. And one of the things, as I touched upon earlier, was my desire to work um, in the space that would help to set uh, conditions in the first instance uh, in Syria for IDPs to return. Uh, again, in a safe and secure, unmolested manner to their to their villages. The UN assesses, and, and we agree, 
that conditions writ large are not there for the safe, um, voluntary, and I stress mm -hmm. voluntary, dignified return of refugees. And indeed, there's some question whether Assad, or maybe less a question than, than a, a conviction that Assad is happy to keep all of those refugees outside uh, his borders. So uh, we work with each country in turn uh, to, um, to, to, to um, assist with the, uh, the, 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 the nature of the pressures and, and the problems that um, hosting these refugees presents. Um, and I will say we led, um, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield led our May pledging uh, conference mm -hmm. um, and announced 800, over 800, I think $808 million in, in, in assistance, which will help. Uh, towards that end. Let me, let me switch to the United States. The previous administration drove down the refugee admissions to quite a low level compared to our historic norms. President Biden indicated that we would uh, raise the refugee cap back up to about 120,000. Um, last year, 2021, uh, we allowed uh, 1,200 uh, Syrian refugees into the United States. And just by order of magnitude, that was 1,200 in a year when we brought 76,000 Afghans in the United States within a period of 90 days. Um, we've made a pledge to uh, 100,000 Ukrainians because of the turmoil there should be able to come to the United States. I support that on the Afghan side. I support that on the Ukrainian side. The Syrian numbers are pretty low. Um, and they've been in refugee status for some time, so it's not as if they're just brand new in terms of being vetted. Many of the, these have been uh, vetted through UN refugee processes for some time now. What what do you understand the administration's plan to be with respect to additional Syrian refugees to the United States? Uh, Senator, uh, this is something that's under review. I don't have a firm answer for you today, but I will come back to you with that. I am um, will be having consultations with my colleague and friend uh, Julieta Noyes, who uh, of course sits over this responsibility. Uh, but I will get you an answer on that. I agree. Uh, the, the numbers are really quite low. Uh, the needs are enormous. Um, and uh, my concern is that we manage uh, these set of stressors on the neighboring countries uh, with a variety of tools, in including welcoming Syrians to the United States. Thank you. I yield back, Mr. Chair. Thank you. <clears throat> I have no other members uh, virtually or here, so I have one final question, Ms. Uh, Mr. Stroll. Uh, there have been conflicting accounts of the effect that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had on its posture in Syria and the overall security situation there. Russian airstrikes have continued, but perhaps at a reduced tempo. But there are now reports that Russia is scaling back its presence on the ground in Syria, raising concerns that Iran uh, may be filling the vacuum. Have you seen a notable change in Russia's Syria posture because of Ukraine? And if so, how and where has Iran taken advantage of that change? Thank you for that question, Mr. Chairman. No, we have not seen a notable change in Russian activities in Syria, nor in its commitment to backing Assad in its brutal campaign that terrorizes Syrian people. I should note here uh, again that Russian forces are still active in Syria. They operate in close proximity to U.S. forces in Syria. It is a testament to the professionalism of U.S. forces that there has not been an inadvertent escalation or miscalculation. We are there, of course, for the enduring defeat of ISIS, although we have seen Russian 
disinformation and misinformation about its work against ISIS in Syria, there is no indication that they are taking meaningful action against that mission set. Okay. And this has been alluded to, but the January prison break in northeastern Syria, as well as other complex attacks and the open extortion of civilians in Syria and Iraq are a worrisome reminder that ISIS remains a threat in both countries, even after the end of the physical caliphate. What, what gaps have these recent attacks exposed in the SDS capacity to secure prisons and continue the hunt for ISIS cells? And what is the administration doing to address these gaps and to boost SDF capacity? Thank you for that question. They're, they're, uh, the SDF are under tremendous pressure, both because they uh, are operating in an area that has not stabilized or recovered since the, dep the depravities of ISIS holding yeah. territory. Uh, there are food insecurity, food security challenges in Northeast Syria that are particularly acute, placing stress on both SDF, the SDF uh, family members, and their communities. And of course, having access to medicine, supplies, et cetera, are very complicated in this part of Northeast Syria. What the, what the US military is doing with the coalition is using the authority and appropriations Congress has granted us through CTEF funding to continue to provide stipends, training, uh, and equipment focused exclusively on defeating ISIS and supporting the humane and secure detention of those ISIS uh, detainees. Uh, and again, just trying to, to support the SDF. I should note again here that the SDF will be under even more strain to maintain the focus we wanted to maintain on ISIS should there be a large-scale Turkish invasion into North, northern Syria. All right. I understand that Senator Van Hollen has logged on and under the wire here, so let's go to him, and then Senator Rich has a question. Senator uh, Van Hollen. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both our witnesses. Um, and that's a good jumping-off uh, point uh, for my, my question, really following up on Senator Portman's question. Has the administration made clear to Turkey in no uncertain terms that an attack on uh, Kurdish groups in northern Syria is unacceptable to the United States. Uh, after all, uh, as has been said, uh, the SDF is, is critical uh, to the fight against uh, ISIS. So have we communicated that that is a, a, a clear no-go uh, zone for the United States? Yes, Senator. Uh, Ambassador Leaf and, and then uh, Ms. Stroll. Let me just add to what uh, Ambassador Leaf just confirmed, which is that we are focused on the enduring defeat of ISIS, on maintaining uh, protections for the civilian population uh, in Northeast Syria, and of course, on the protection of U.S. forces and coalition forces. Large-scale uh, incursions either by Turkish military or by Turkish-supported opposition in Syria would have a negative impact and jeopardize our commitment to the de-ISIS mission. We make that clear consistently. Uh, thank you. Uh, as you know, uh, Turkey has um, indicated that they'd like uh, to purchase additional F-16s and, and upgrades for some of their existing F-16s. Um, how would a, a Turkish military action in, in northern Syria impact the, the administration's decision-making on, on that? Uh, 
Senator, it's pre-decisional, and I, and I wouldn't have anything that I could uh, offer you today. Well, well, I hope we're communicating very clearly to, to Turkey uh, that that would be an unacceptable step. As, as we know, Turkey is currently threatening to hold up uh, the admission of both Finland and Sweden uh, to NATO uh, because of those countries' uh, support uh, for for Syrian Kurds. Uh, so uh, it, it seems to me a moment where we have to communicate very clearly to Turkey uh, what the red lines are here. Um, let me let me ask you about uh, economic support in northern S Syria, and I want to commend the administration for the granting of uh, general licenses. Um, Ambassador Leaf, can you talk a little bit about how those additional uh, economic support funds are, are being implemented on the ground? So in terms of uh, General License 22, uh, Senator, um, uh, this was uh, this came about through the very helpful suggestion by the chairman and Senator Rubio that we look to enhance uh, the opportunities for economic uh, regeneration in the areas liberated from ISIS, and that is what this uh, this license is all about: is assisting the communities, the people of those areas, uh, to uh, to engage in and in, in commercial activity and so forth that will create resiliency and um, put at bay the prospects for ISIS returning to those areas. Uh, are there any new initiatives that have been undertaken? Can you just talk a little more specifically about how some of those, those funds are being used? I'm sorry, as Senator, I thought you were talking about the general license. Uh, you're, you're talking about uh, economic support? Uh, well, actually, I was. I did mention both. You're right. Uh, in terms of the the general license, how how is that? Have you seen any positive impacts uh, to date from that? It's it's a really it's a relatively new development. I will dig into to that and come back to you with a more detailed assessment as to how that is what impact that is happen, happening having rather. Thanks. Um, so my final question relates to the upcoming uh, July vote in the UN Security Council about the humanitarian corridor, and I understand that Senator Risch asked about this, and you indicated that we went through this last year, and of course, at the end, you know, we were able to maintain the corridor. Obviously, a big thing's happened since last July and this July, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, what would be the impact if Russia was to veto it or prevent um, that action this year? Senator, not to put too fine a point upon it, uh, it would trigger a massive humanitarian crisis. There's no substitute for the Bab al-Hawa cross-border access point. Uh, as part of last year's um, uh, discussions, um, the 2585 uh, language included a commitment that uh, cross-line assistance would also be prioritized. And indeed, uh, there have been those efforts uh, throughout the year. But to give you a, 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 you know, a sense of the scale, uh, something on the order of one and a half million Syrians are, are serviced through Bab al-Hawa on, on an average uh, month. There have been four cross-border uh, conveyances of, of material uh, and, and at foodstuffs and other um, commodities to Syrians in the Northwest over the course of the year. The last one, I think, uh, was able to provide provisions for about 43,000 Syrians. So the scale is entirely uh, different. Um, the U.S. is committed to 
getting humanitarian assistance through to the needy through all possible means, but there's no question that cross-border access is the single most important piece of that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, we have colleagues that have now joined us. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Ms. Stroud, uh, as you know, Senator Kane and I uh, have been working to repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force. And my understanding is that Operation Inherent Resolve does not rely on either of these two justifications. Uh, rather, um, it is authorized pursuant to the 2001 AUMF. Is that accurate? Yes, Senator, that is accurate. Okay. And I, so I just want to confirm uh, my understanding. Would repeal of, of the 2002 and 91 AOMFs negatively impact our mission or endanger our service members whatsoever in Syria under Operation Inherent Resolve? The administration's review is that repeal of the 2002 AUMF would be unlikely to constrain our reasonably foreseeable range of operations in Syria or Iraq or to impact our ability to protect U.S. national security. There are no ongoing military activities that rely solely on the 2002 AUMF as a domestic legal basis. Right, and, and, and the 1991 AUMF is, is so far into the past that uh, it's really not even at issue in most people's minds. Is that accurate? Yes, it's accurate. Okay. Does DOD have the authorities and resources necessary to counter Islamic State in the Eastern secu Syria security area and to conduct related counterterrorism operations? Yes, Senator. As a, as a matter of domestic law, we rely on the 2001 AUMF to authorize the use of force in Syria against al-Qaeda and ISIS. All right. Oh, thank you. Well, um, put me on record, I still think it's a, a good idea uh, since we are allies with uh, the uh, Iraqi government, the Iraqi people, to send that message that we are not any longer at war with them. Uh, the O2A UMF was, of course, uh, targeted uh, at uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, regime. Um, <clears throat> Assistant Secretary Leaf, uh, despite your opening statement, I'm, I'm concerned the administration is signaling it's open to some normalization uh, through its brokered deal to deliver gas to Lebanon via a pipeline in Syria. The Assad regime will receive gas in recompense for facilitating this flow. This seems in direct contravention to our policy in Syria and counter to the intent of the Caesar Act. How does the Lebanon gas deal not violate U.S. sanctions barring transactions with the Syrian government? Senator, thank you for that question, and, and, it, and it's a great opportunity to lay out what we are intending, what we are hoping to do. Uh, through this perspective arrangement. And I would just stress that no decisions have been made because no contracts have been finalized. So there is a process underway right now. But let me start by saying um, there's a process underway right now to finalize those contracts between the various governments. But let me start by saying that uh, the, the driver for any such arrangement is the benefit of the Lebanese people. Lebanon has been in a parlous state for several years and is now on the verge of state collapse, of societal collapse. We are trying through a variety of measures to put a floor under such a prospect because uh, the, the, the 
the repercussions for the Lebanese people uh, don't, you know, are, are one thing, but the repercussions for the wider region would be even greater for Israel, for Jordan, and others. So we are uh, working on a variety of measures, and this is one of them. This was proffered by regional governments, regional governments coming forward with regional solutions. That's Egypt and Jordan, uh, transferring Egyptian natural gas uh, via Jordan, and as you said, through Assyrian pipelines. Uh, there is, as we understand it, uh, there is no cash transfer of any kind to the Syrian government. It would be in kind, and and I, I would stress there are the Lebanese people have about two hours of of, of electricity today. Sure, it would be a matter of minutes of, of power provided. I, to I don't have a lot Syria. of time. I'm left. sorry. So uh, so it's your belief because you alluded to our allies and in, in having done this in consultation with at least some of the regional allies. You don't think this sends uh, mixed messages or or uh, uh, any sort of negative message to allies who uh, are, are fighting against the Assad regime and uh, countries in the region uh, who are concerned about isolating the Assad regime and, and holding uh, uh, Mr. Assad uh, accountable. Senator, I think it's I think the I think people are very clear who the who who this is intended for, and I will tell you the King of Jordan is one of the most concerned of our partners about the prospect of collapse in Lebanon. And he would like to do whatever is possible to uh, mitigate that prospect. Thank you both. Thank you. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rish, and um, thank you to our panel, uh, both for your service and for your testimony. Uh, as we all know, uh, Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine has garnered um, significant global attention, but it's critical that we also sustain our focus on an engagement with Syria, a country where uh, Russia's uh, engagement, exploitation, meddling, uh, commission of human rights abuses uh, have led to massive suffering and widespread uh, displacement. More than 14 million people inside Syria are in need of humanitarian aid, and uh, nearly all, 97% of the Syrian population, lives under the poverty line. As chairman of the Appropriations Committee responsible for our humanitarian assistance, I keep pushing for robust assistance, including for Syrian refugees and those most vulnerable as this conflict grinds on into its 11th year. I think it's critical we do everything in our power to maintain humanitarian cross-border access into northwestern Syria and to continue pressing for other routes of humanitarian access. I'm concerned the prospect of a Russian veto at the Security Council uh, when the cross-border mandate renewal comes up uh, this July uh, will lead to further suffering. Russia's used its seat on the Security Council to weaken international resolve across a wide range of issues to spread in disinformation. Um, how are we working, if I might, Assistant Secretary Leaf, how are we working with other like-minded Security Council members uh, to prevent a veto and to counter Russian influence within the Security Council? Uh, thank you for that question, Senator. It's, a, it's an abiding preoccupation for, uh, for us in, in the Department of State, for our mission in, in New York, um, and we are working all channels. I would just say um, that there are some uh, pretty significant players in this space in terms of uh, their channels with Russia. One of them is, in fact, Turkey. Turkey will be directly affected by uh, the scale of, of, of a humanitarian crisis unleashed by Russia vetoing this border crossing. And I know that the, 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 the Turkish government is quite engaged in those discussions, as are a number of others. But um, as, I, uh, as I've looked at this um, and as we are working together hand-in-hand hand with other partners outside the council and in, I think there's a very deep consensus on this matter. 
Russia will stand alone, completely alone, if it does go forward with this. Uh, but really, this is a strictly humanitarian uh, matter. And uh, I th I, I'm not going to say whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic at this point. I'm just very focused on getting the results that we need. One of the things I've been focused on is the food crisis that's resulting from Russia's unprovoked um, and illegal attack on Ukraine, um, the way in which the 400 million people who were fed by Ukrainian agricultural products last year are now at risk of famine. Um, something like uh, 12 and a half million Syrians um, suffer from food insecurity, according to the World Food Program. What's the status of the food supply in Syria? What actions is the administration taking to um, address the critical need to get access to the agricultural products of Ukraine? And um, how might we address both the cooking oil and uh, food shortages brought about by Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine and continued blockade of the Black Sea ports of Ukraine? Well, Senator, in fact, I, I know that there are efforts underway um, in a number of channels in our government uh, to get to the heart of the problem, which is the blockade of uh, Ukraine's ports, the targeting, of course, of Ukraine's uh, wheat and other supplies. Um, you are absolutely right that Syria is made all the more vulnerable uh, by uh, Syria's population is made all the more vulnerable by Putin's war on Ukraine, and so is Lebanon next door. Lebanon used to import something on the order of 80% of its uh, needs um, from, from Ukraine, and of course the port explosion uh, blew to pieces all of the, uh, all the, the supplies. We are focusing um, our humanitarian assistance and certainly our early recovery efforts in this space um, uh, as part of a, of a larger effort um, to identify how we can get uh, to the most vulnerable uh, populations. If I might ask one last question. Um, for both of you, um, how is Russia repositioning as a result of the war in Ukraine? And to what extent are you seeing the likelihood of increased Iranian involvement in Syria as the Russians' principal security focus is their ongoing war in Ukraine? Thank you, Senator, for that question. We have seen no meaningful changes in Russians, Russia's intervention in Syria and its support to the Assad regime or in its commitment to backing the Assad regime in its continued war against the Syrian people in Syria. With respect to Iran, Iran's ultimate objectives in Syria and for the region have also not changed. Iran remains committed to both pushing U.S. forces and, US, and the United States out of the region and it continues its commitment to supporting uh, a network of violent proxies and terrorists in terrorizing and destabilizing regional governments, as well as threatening Israel. From a Department of Defense perspective, our commitment to pushing back on these activities and supporting Israel and her inherent right to self-defense also has not changed. Thank you. Thank you both for your testimony. Thank, Thank you. you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning to each of you. Assistant Secretary Leaf, uh, I want to begin by asking you questions about the administration's plan to route Egyptian gas to Lebanon through Jordan and Syria, and in the process using the energy infrastructure of the Iranian-controlled Assad regime. In January, the United States ambassador to Lebanon said that Lebanon didn't need to worry about American sanctions for this scheme and that indeed the U.S. had conveyed assurances to that effect. I publicly stated at the time 
that that was exceptionally poor advice, that Lebanon should absolutely worry about violating U.S. sanctions, and so should every other country involved in these schemes. I added that Congress would strongly oppose the Biden administration trying to enrich Assad. And indeed, we've seen and heard some of that opposition already today. Congress, to say nothing of this committee, will ensure that United States sanctions are fully insured, enforced. The actions of this administration are endangering the American allies involved in these deals and exposing them to acute future sanctions risks. It's also worrying that the Biden administration, again, has been deliberately vague about this Middle East policy. Administration officials sometimes say they'll provide letters, licenses, or waivers to exempt countries from sanctions on Assad. Other times, they've said, oddly enough, that the sanctions passed by Congress don't apply at all. So I'd like to ask you about that. Last October, Undersecretary Newland said that one scheme, quote, falls under the humanitarian category. No sanctions waiver would be required in this instance. Even earlier, the State Department's energy envoy said, had said that gas deals don't count as transactions at all. I'd like you to be specific. Is it your understanding that the energy project to bring Egyptian gas to Lebanon via Jordan and Syria would be exempt from Caesar Act sanctions or would it require waivers and licenses to avoid sanctions exposure? Uh, thank you, Senator, for, that, for, for those questions. Uh, we've not seen the final details of these contracts, so I reserve judgment. We've made no decision. Uh, we have made no commitments of exemptions, waivers, or what have you. We'll look at the details of, of these contracts. Treasury, OFAC, state will look at these details and, and make a, a finding then. What we have seen, what we've, uh, what we've uh, been privy to in terms of the arrangements that are under discussion uh, would involve the World Bank uh, providing a two-year loan uh, that would also be conditioned on far-reaching, extensive uh, um, uh, reform of the electricity sector, to put it on a sounder, enduring footing. Uh, once the World Bank looks at this, we would look at uh, the details of the contract and make a judgment at that time. So are the public reports accurate that you've given assurances that sanctions wouldn't apply? No, uh, they're, they're, not, they're not accurate. What I am aware of, we have given what are termed pre-assurances that governments may engage in discussions, discussions about these arrangements. But the final decision will be the final decision by the Treasury, Department of Treasury. Well, I will note that the final decision by Treasury will not, in fact, be the final decision. There will be successor administrations. And in successor administrations, I think it is quite likely that a future administration will immediately move to restore pressure on Iran and its proxies and is very likely to revoke any waivers or licenses granted. And as a result, the conduct of the Biden administration is exposing our allies to a serious and acute risk of sanctions. Senator, this, uh, these set of arrangements, of prospective arrangements, came about precisely because of the current concern on the part of the governments of Jordan and Egypt 
and indeed a number of others, about the prospect for the, for, for the state of Lebanon to, to collapse, given the diminishing uh, level of energy available, uh, the resort to propaganda stunts by Hezbollah to bring in uh, sanctioned Iranian oil, oil that didn't go to the public, didn't go to the national electric, electricity grid, just disappeared into the black, uh, black market. So this is a way of transparently, transparently uh, the theory of the, of the arrangement is that it will transparently provide that life-sustaining, e economic-sustaining, uh, economy-sustaining energy to the public, because otherwise the state and the society itself is on the point of collapse. With well, all that, of the that, that may be the theory of the arrangement, but it doesn't give the administration the ability to disregard binding and mandatory sanctions passed by Congress. A, a, a final question: You mentioned Hezbollah, and the United States has spent billions of dollars over the last two decades to build up the Lebanese armed forces. Are you aware of the Lebanese armed forces stopping Hezbollah weapons convoys into Lebanon, and and and, and how many times? I'd have to look at that in detail and come back to you with an answer, sir. Is it concerning that we're giving billions to an armed forces that is not in any meaningful way opposing <clears throat> Hezbollah? What I could say is the following about the Lebanese armed forces. Uh, they are on the verge of being the only remaining national institution that has the capability to sustain the security and to mitigate some of the effects of, of Lebanon's collapse. Uh, they are the one institution uh, nationally that is trusted by the Lebanese public. They're struggling to carry out their responsibilities. Uh, the last thing we want to see is the laugh collapse as well. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Rich has some final questions, then we're going to move to very important. Well, panel. very, uh, very briefly, Mr. Chairman, because we do need to move to the next uh, uh, next group. I, I'm uh, not satisfied with the discussion we've had about the lack of Caesar sanctions, and I've, I've got some matters I want to pursue there. Um, not totally unlike what Senator Cruz has been uh, pursuing. Uh, the answer that, uh, that uh, Syria is going to be paid in kind in no way exempts us from, uh, from Caesar sanctions. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, propound some questions uh, for the record, please, and uh, ask that they uh, commit to respond. Absolutely. To Senator Markey had just announced we were going to go to the next panel, but since you've just arrived in the nick of time, uh, we'll recognize you. But after this, I'm just making a public announcement. We're moving to the next panel. If someone has not achieved, uh, arrived here, they'll have to submit their questions for the record. Um, <clears throat> Wednesdays, every committee schedules at 10 o'clock. And while you can be ubiquitous um, uh, in, uh, uh, in some uh, instances here, um, it's very difficult only because of the distance you have to travel. So I apologize, Mr. Chairman, and to the committee um, members. Um, the Assad regime repeatedly broke the century-old taboo against the use of chemical weapons. Um, we obviously want to eliminate the scourge of chemical weapons, which is all the more important given the threat that Russia could use chemical weapons in its illegal war in Ukraine. On Syria, we know that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has not received certain requested information from Syria, and the deployment of the OPCW Declaration Assessment Team has been delayed because of difficulties acquiring visas to enter Syria. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State Leaf, what is your department doing 
to work on getting an inspection team into Syria to verify the elimination of Syria's declared and non-declared chemical weapons program. Thank you, Senator, for that question. There's no, there, there is no doubt that the Assad regime's um, uh, retention of the capability of using these uh, terrifying weapons against its own public um, is has to remain a top priority. is a is a top priority. I will commit to you that I will uh, put my own personal efforts uh, to that end to clear the way for this team to get into Syria and to do its work. Yeah, I think it. I think we have to put special emphasis on it, given what the implications are for um, Ukraine, uh, because there's complete uncertainty as to the sustainability of the Russian incursion, and desperation uh, could breed um, actions that are otherwise unacceptable. Deputy Assistant Secretary Stroll, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, over 40,000 Syrians have registered to fight on behalf of Russia in Ukraine, and deployment is now beginning. Is there anything the United States and its partners can do to prevent thousands and thousands of Syrian mercenaries from successfully transiting to Ukraine? Thank you for that question, Senator. We have also seen the open source reporting about large numbers of Syrians being relocated by Russia to the Ukraine theater of war. We have not seen large-scale movements like that on the ground. If there are smaller groups, ones and twos here and there, fine. But we have not seen in our intelligence assessments does not see large-scale movements. We are continuing to monitor that very closely. Okay, so you're saying that 40,000 number has not translated in Ukraine uh, into operational troops for the Yes, Senator, that is what I am saying. I also think it is important to take note of the massive amounts of disinformation and misinformation in the environment by, by Russia, both in the Syria theater and in the Ukraine theater. Yeah, and again, that disinformation that you're referring to is that there are Syrian troops there or that there are not Syrian troops there? We have not seen indications of large tens of thousands of forces from Syrian, Syrian fighters being moved to Ukraine. That is disinformation. Okay, great. Thank you. That's very helpful to be clarified. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, with a thanks to the committee, uh, to both of you for your testimony, we look forward to continuing engagement. As you can see, there's about a dozen members who came here. Uh, so this is a, a topic of great uh, significance. Uh, for for per, you're the, the, And you are both excused. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> for the purposes of um, the committee's information, it's the chair's intention in consultation with the ranking member to move through to the second panel to hear their testimony, and then we'll see how far we can get to uh, questions. Uh, <clears throat> and as we call upon them to join us in the hearing room, We'll just introduce them. After 11 years of conflict, Syria remains as far as ever from a durable solution to the conflict that will allow Syrians to live in peace and dignity in those 11 years. One of the few constants to the conflict has been the Assad regime's barbarous treatment of fellow Syrians with the active support and participation of Russia and Iran. From barrel bombs and double-tap airstrikes and first responder to the regime's industrial-scale torture, and murder of dissidents, actors, and their family members in a network of detention facilities. The numbers give a grim accounting of the suffering unleashed on Syrians by the regime that would claim uh, to govern them. Over half a million killed, nearly 7 million internally displaced, 6.6 .6 million registered as refugees around the world, more than half of Syria's pre-war population. 
14.6 million inside of Syria need a humanitarian assistance. But the numbers alone don't provide a full sense of the horrors inflicted by the regime and the continuing importance of holding Bashar al-Assad and his Syrian cronies and Russian and Iranian enablers accountable for the crimes against its people. Uh, we'd like to welcome a man known only as the Gravedigger, who will provide a harrowing and courageous eyewitness account of the regime's atrocities and its attempt to literally bury the evidence of those crimes by burying its victims in mass graves. Although we normally ask witnesses to limit their spoken testimony to five minutes, we have agreed to allow the gravedigger 10 minutes for his opening statement to allow the full weight of his testimony to be felt. I'd also like to welcome Professor Milena uh, Stereo, the Charles R. Emmerich Jr. Calfrey Halter and Griswold Professor of Law at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law. Professor Stereo is an expert on international criminal law and international human rights law. She has written extensively on atrocity accountability in general and its application to the Syrian conflict in particular. Thank you both for joining us today. With that, um, we'll recognize, both of your statements will be fully included for the record. With that, we'll recognize uh, the grave digger for his uh, remarks. Thank you, Chairman Menendez. Thank you, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch for holding this hearing, and thank you, Senator Risch, for inviting me to speak. I am honored to give testimony before the Story Committee. Thank you for giving me a chance to bring my voice to the United States Congress, government, and most importantly, to the American people whose democracy inspired our revolution in Syria over a decade ago. On March 11, 2020, the military photographer and defector Caesar shared his story with you. Every day, he photographed bodies that had been detained, tortured, murdered in Syrian regime dungeons. The signs of torture were clear, and the photographs were here on display in front of your honorable committee. You saw it with your own eyes, innocent civilians experiencing the most brutal methods of torture, burning, strangulation, sodomy, and ultimately death, all for daring to dream of a free Syria. Now, over two years later, nothing has changed in Syria. The Assad regime is no less brutal. The Syrian people are no less risk at risk. How many more times does a witness to war crimes need to sit in front of you and describe the horrors of the Assad regime? I hope that by sharing my story, it may spark something inside you and maybe even renew hope for the future of Syria. Every time I tell my story, it takes a toll on me, but, I have, but all I have is my voice, and I will speak until I can't anymore. I was witness to mass graves in Syria from 2011 to 2018, where men and women, children and elderly, were tortured, executed, gassed, and bombed by the Assad regime, Iran, and Russia, and callously thrown into trenches, their fate unknown to loved ones. Their lives have been lost, they cannot be saved, and they demand accountability. But the reason I am sharing my story today 
is to tell you that they are digging mass graves right now to bury more victims of Assad, Iran, and Russia. I'm a civilian. Before the war, I was an administrative employee of the Damascus municipality. My job was to help families make final preparations for their loved ones passing. Each funeral was dignified with religious prayers and rituals, and all were properly laid to rest. Family members were given an opportunity to say goodbye, and the sanctity of every grave was respected. In 2011, my office was visited by regime intelligence officials, and I was ordered, for, and I was ordered to work for them. And when the regime asks for something, you don't say no. I was not prepared for the horror of my duties. Every week, twice a week, three trailer trucks arrived, packed with 300 to 600 bodies of victims of torture, bombardment, and slaughter. Twice a week, three to four pickup trucks with 30 to 40 bodies of civilians that had been executed in Saidnaya prison also arrived for disposal in the most inhumane way. After seven years of bearing witness to these atrocities, thanks to God and the ineptitude of the regime, I was able to escape Syria and follow my family to Europe. There, it was not only my duty, but my honor to testify before the German National Court in Koblenz and seek some semblance of justice to hold war criminals accountable for the ongoing atrocities in Syria. I have never been able to forget what I saw, the countless bodies I buried, it keeps me up at night, and I will never sleep soundly carrying this burden. No one should, because these massacres are still happening. There are, according to conservative estimates, at least 150,000 missing and unaccounted for Syrians. Their families have no closure, holding out hope for any bit of information. My heart is heavy with the knowledge that, there, that many are at this very moment experiencing inhumane torture at the hands of the Assad regime. And some, I know exactly where they are piled up into mass graves that are still being dug today. I know this because others who worked with me on the mass graves have very recently escaped and confirmed what we have been hearing. The Syrian people have suffered enough. Over the 11 years of war, hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians have not just been executed, but starved, tortured, raped, burned, and murdered in the most sadistic ways anyone can imagine. Men and women, children and elderly, innocent people slowly tortured to death, screaming in the darkness while the world looks the other way. Those lucky enough not to be imprisoned live in fear every day. Fear of being targeted with chemical weapons, cluster bombs, and internationally banned weapons. Among those murdered are Americans, including journalists and humanitarian workers. I will never forget how Assad's forces ridiculed and laughed about the fact that they tortured, murdered, and buried Americans and Europeans too. As the leader of the free world, America should set the example and live up to its values. The international order depends on it. When the international community fails to condemn crimes against humanity, genocidal massacres, the bombardment of hospitals and schools, enforced disappearances and detention, criminal regimes will continue to push the limits unhindered. Russia, by its own admission, tested over 200 weapons on civilians in Syria. 
the international community looked the other way. And now Russia is using those same weapons and tactics in Ukraine that it honed in its seven years waging war against the Syrian people. Where is the line? Chemical weapons against innocent civilians was not the line in Syria. The playbook of these tyrants is written, and I fear the worst for the Ukrainian people. Enabling Assad enables Putin, and stopping Assad hurts the Russian dictator. We must, remain, we must finally learn from the past and not let this never again moment happen yet again. I lived with death for seven years, with dead bodies and soulless intelligence officers. It might seem unimaginable to you, so let me share some of the horrors that have never left my mind. One day, one of the trailer trucks with hundreds of bodies dumps its content of these hundreds of bodies, dead, mangled corpses into the trench in front of us. Unexpectedly, we saw a flicker of movement. There was a man near death, but still alive, desperately using his last reserve of energy to signal to us that somehow he was still alive. One of the civilian workers said, started crying, said that, that we had to do something. The intelligence officer over, supervising us ordered the bulldozer driver to run him over. The driver could not hesitate or else he would have been next. He ran over the man in the trenches, killing him. As for the young man in our workshop who dared to shed tears over the victim of Assad's regime, we never saw him again. Once, I, had I, had, I was told to visit a farm of an intelligence officer. When I arrived, there was about 10 intelligence officers, senior officers. They were eating and drinking alcohol. And more surprisingly, there were over 15 young men handcuffed, blindfolded, and naked on the ground. One of the intelligence officers ordered one of the soldiers to untie the civilians and let them go. The blindfolds and handcuffs were removed, and I remember the confusion and the fear in the young men's eyes. An intelligence officer asked what they were waiting for to the young men. He told them to run, and they took off. Then another officer grabbed his rifle and picked the young men off one by one. Every last one was murdered. And then the Assad, Assad's officers continued with their festivities. I buried so many children tortured to death, and I remember them all. I buried a mother still holding her infant to her breast as their lifeless bodies were thrown into the trench among the others. And one day, I was at a military hospital where the bodies are processed before being sent to the mass graves. And there was a body of a little girl, only six or seven years old. Her little lifeless body showed signs of terrible torture. The doctor at the hospital took me aside and told me he was ordered to write that she died of cardiac arrest. But in reality, she had died as she was being continuously and horrifically raped by 11 senior, by 11 Assad regime intelligence officers. As members of the United States Senate, you all have the power to change the world. By sharing my story, I am taking this burden off of my shoulders and sharing it with you all. This is now on your shoulders, on your conscience, Take heed of what's happening in Syria. Although hundreds of thousands have already been murdered and disappeared, and millions displaced, the worst is still yet to come. 
it can be prevented. But I beg of you, do not wait a second longer. I beg of you to take action. And recently, I was contacted by a bulldozer driver that worked during the same time that I worked there. There is a video that he has submitted that I would like to submit for the record. Thank you. Thank you. That is the same video I believe Senator Grish has asked for consent and it is included in the record. Thank you very much, Grave Digger. Uh, Professor Stereo, you're recognized. Good, mo good morning, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee. It is an honor to testify before you today. It is also a privilege to share this platform with the other individuals testifying before the committee, and especially the gravedigger. The conflict in Syria has co continued over the past 11 years and has resulted in the commission of countless atrocities, such as mass executions, widespread rapes, systematic torture, and repeated use of chemical weapons against civilians. These crimes require prosecution from a global deterrent standpoint. In light of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the ordering of atrocities there by Russian leaders, establishing accountability for those who ordered the commission of atrocity crimes, whether in Syria or in Ukraine, has become paramount. Accountability options for the prosecution of Syrian leaders range from prosecutions in the courts of Syria and prosecutions in the national courts of various countries under the principle of universal jurisdiction to the establishment of a hybrid tribunal for Syria and prosecutions in the International Criminal Court at The Hague in the Netherlands. First, prosecutions in the courts of Syria. Assuming that there may be a transition of leadership in Syria at some point in the future, a new Syrian regime may be interested in imposing accountability on individuals associated with the Assad regime. Examples of countries where domestic courts have investigated similar crimes after a change in the governing regime include East Timor, Cambodia, and Colombia. If prosecutions were to occur in the Syrian courts, the international community, including the United States, could assist Syria by supporting the establishment of specialized internationalized chambers dedicated to the prosecution of atrocity crimes within the Syrian judicial system. Such internationally supported domestic chambers have already been created in Iraq, in Bosnia, as well as in the context of piracy prosecutions in Kenya and in the Seychelles. Second, prosecutions in various national courts under the principle of universal jurisdiction. Universal jurisdiction provides every state with the authority to prosecute a limited category of offenses generally recognized as of a universal concern, regardless of where the offense occurred, the nationality of the perpetrator, or the nationality of the victim. Crimes over which universal jurisdiction extends include piracy, slavery, war crimes, crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, genocide, and torture. In the context of the Syrian conflict, some national level courts have already relied on the principle of universal jurisdiction to initiate investigations and prosecutions. For example, on January 13, 2022, the Higher Regional Court in Koblenz, Germany, convicted senior Assad government official Anwar Raslan for a crime against humanity and sentenced him to life in prison. In February 2021, the same German court also convicted Raslan's co-defendant, Ayad Al-Gharib, and a new case is currently being prosecuted in the courts in Frankfurt, Germany. A number of other European states have begun prosecuting Syrian perpetrators found in their territory, and some of these states include France, Sweden, Switzerland, Austria, and the Netherlands. Third, the establishment of a hybrid tribunal for Syria. 
Hybrid tribunals are courts that combine elements of international and national prosecutions, and some recent examples of these hybrid tribunals include the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, and the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Many have already advocated for the creation of a hybrid tribunal for Syria. Such a tribunal could be created through an agreement signed by the United Nations General Assembly or Secretary General and the government of Syria, or through a Security Council resolution. Both options are, not, are, are unlikely in the context of Syria at the present, but these options are important accountability avenues and should remain part of any future accountability discussions regarding Syria. Fourth, prosecutions at the International Criminal Court. The ICC is the only permanent international criminal court, and it is located at The Hague in the Netherlands and has jurisdiction over genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, as well as aggression. In the context of Syria, the ICC is a limited option. Syria is not a member state of the ICC, and as this court has jurisdiction only in situations where the alleged perpetrator is a citizen of a member state, or if the alleged crime takes place on the territory of a member state, the court can only launch prosecutions against individuals who committed crimes in Syria, but who are nationals of ICC member states. Moreover, although in theory a case can be referred to the ICC through a Security Council resolution, any such resolution regarding Syria is unlikely in light of the Russian and Chinese veto. But the ICC is an important global accountability option at a theoretical level, and its involvement in Syria should continue to be explored. explored. One current idea is a group of human rights lawyers has recently advanced the argument that crimes committed in Syria have a link to Jordan, where many of the victims have fled to, in order to create territorial jurisdiction for the court as Jordan is a member state. As this testimony has documented, there's a pressing need to establish accountability for atrocities committed during the Syria conflict. Different accountability options, as mentioned, include prosecutions in Syrian courts, national-level prosecutions under the principle of universal jurisdiction, the establishment of a hybrid tribunal for Syria, as well as prosecutions at the International Criminal Court. It is time that the international community, with support from the United States, act towards accountability. Imposing accountability on Syrian leaders in particular is paramount in the wake of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the commission of atrocities there by Russian forces. It is crucial to establish that accountability attaches to all those who order the commission of atrocities, whether, whether they be located in Syria or in Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Risch. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, and first of all, I want to thank our witnesses for testifying here today. Certainly, uh, these are hard to listen to, but it's uh, something that, uh, as I said before, when this is over, it's not over. And uh, it's important we keep this in front of everyone. Um, uh, I, I am interested in the principle of uh, universal jurisdiction. I think we're at the very early stages of uh, what that will be in the overall scheme of things. Uh, it, it was interesting to see it used, I think, probably for the first time in the German uh, uh, prosecutions, but uh, I suspect that uh, this body of law is going to grow and uh, it will be interesting to follow that. And it's, that certainly will be an important aspect of uh, the, our, our belief of never again and our belief that it's not over until, we, until everyone has been held accountable that should be. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you both for your testimony. You know, Ukraine is dominating the global headlines, but Syria is the place where the laws of war and accountability have been flouted for years. Uh, the Assad regime and Vladimir Putin have made the violation of international humanitarian law the norm in Syria. 
and the international community has largely failed when it comes to pursuing accountability for more than a decade of horrific violations in Syria. So, uh, uh, Professor, uh, I, I heard uh, your exposition of the possibilities. Uh, one of the challenges, uh, truly frustrating obstacles to accountability is the frequent inability to take the perpetrators into custody because they remain outside of any relevant legal jurisdiction. Can you explain, even in the face of that, why it's so important to pursue these legal cases? Obviously, beyond the overriding importance of giving a voice and hope to the victims of these crimes, are there tangible uh, diplomatic political benefits to pursuing perpetrators, even when apprehension seems unlikely, especially in the context of a conflict like Syria? Thank you for the question. Um, absolutely, it is important to pursue accountability. And before I answer your question, let me just add that these cases that I mentioned in Germany, in those particular cases, the perpetrators were actually in Germany. Some of them had sought asylum in Germany and were on German territory. German prosecutors realized that they were, were there and were able to actually um, capture that moment, if you will, and, 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 and arrest them in Germany and bring them to prosecution. So some of these trials are actually um, able to be conducted because these countries, mostly Western European nations, have actually found the perpetrators to be on their territory. Even in the absence of the ability to capture some of these individuals, it is important to establish the principle of individual criminal responsibility for those who order the commission of atrocities or for those who commit atrocities themselves. The short answer as to why is that it is the right thing to do, but the slightly longer answer is that international law and international criminal law since Nuremberg, since the end of World War II, has established this principle of responsibility for those who commit these atrocity crimes. And the other reason that this is so important is from a global deterrence standpoint. Um, leaders like Vladimir Putin probably today don't expect that they will face accountability someday, but international criminal justice is patient and persistent, and many leaders have actually faced accountability for their action many dec decades after they committed or ordered those actions to be committed. And so it is important to establish accountability for global deterrence because it's the right thing to do, because international law provides for this principle of international criminal responsibility. Thank you. Finally, uh, uh, to the gravedigger, your testimony at the trial in Koblenz was both brave and moving. Uh, what do you think made a conviction possible in that case? Um, I believe that the bravery of the victims and the witnesses, both the victims of the of the crimes of those that were arrested, that were arrested in Germany in the Koblenz case, and, and the bravery of witnesses that came forward is what helped bring about the conviction. Well, we appreciate that bravery in your testimony as to the horrors that uh, Assad has afflicted on his own people. It's riveting and I look forward uh, to looking to the video, even though I'm sure it will be rather consequential. Uh, we appreciate the testimony of both of you. Uh, this re record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.